Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to ShiftingCulturePodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each Tuesday. And help us out by looking at your app right now and giving a rating and review. This will help us get more listeners and into the hands of more people to enjoy amazing conversations like this one with AJ Swoboda today. Well, previous guests on the show have included Julian Adams, David Zoll, and Mandy Smith. You could go back, listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is AJ Swoboda. Dr. AJ Swoboda is a pastor, professor, and writer. He's the associate professor of the of Bible, theology, and world Christianity at Bushnell University. And he also leads a doctor of ministry program around the Holy Spirit and leadership at Fuller Seminary. He's also the author of 10 books, including Redeeming How We Talk, After Doubt, and Subversive Sabbath. Oh, he also co-hosts a podcast, Slow Theology, with Dr. Nije Gupta. We have a really good conversation around being formed like Jesus, how life comes out of our differences, Sabbath keeping as a discipline, changing our mind as a fundamental truth of who we are as becoming more like Jesus, and so much more. AJ has a wealth of wisdom to share, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. AJ Swoboda. AJ, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on, so thanks for joining us. Joshua, thanks for having me. It's a great. It's a, it's a blast to be here. Yeah, I'm hoping for a good conversation. It's be good. I've, I'd love to just uh, to get your perspective uh, as your journey as you've been formed uh, into the image of Jesus, your journey into learning, uh, unlearning, and relearning things as you start to practice the ways of Jesus and become more like him. What has that journey been been for you? Mm. Wow, what a big question. I know, it's a big, big question. <laughs> I was I was praying about it. I was like, I'm going to start really big. <laughs> wow. Well, that is, that that should take us through the end of the podcast and into next week. Well, um, yeah, so I am, my background, my story is pretty unique in the sense that um, I was not raised uh, in the church Um uh, nominally went to uh, mass with my mom as a kid, but really was not a, I wasn't a church kid, wasn't a Christian kid. I had a pretty dramatic conversion to Christianity when I was 16. And as a result of just, you know, being being a convert, being new to the church, um, I didn't have much of a foundation. So I, I, I really, my entire journey, Joshua, I feel like has been one large journey of discovering how wrong I've been. I mean, you know, when you, you go through iterations in your iPhone or your, your computer where you have to update and you get a new operating system, you can't go back in the operating system. I feel like there have been countless, uh, operating system updates in my journey with Jesus. And, <laughs> uh, those operating system updates have just at times come at a blistering at blistering speed, but yeah, you know, uh, um, 
that there's a there's a there's a kind of humility that comes with being a Christian because it's yeah. it's like the one I I would say it's it's one of the few faith traditions that we have in the world that that actually says the sign that you're you're on the right track is your willingness to admit that you've been on the wrong track mm-hmm. and one one's willingness to admit their wrongness is the sign that they're actually following somebody outside themselves. I feel really concerned for for my friends that are never wrong because yeah. they, they are that they are their own truth and that's a really sad place to be when you are the matrix <laughs> when you're the metric for your own your own yeah. journey. So, man, yeah, I've been following Jesus for 25 years and it's been one long journey of recognizing ways in which I am uh, vastly, vastly behind and, but Jesus is faithful and loving and yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the, the Greek word for uh, repentance is the, the word metanoia, which fundamentally it just means to change your mind. And yeah. that, that, I mean, metanoia, change your mind. That, that is a fundamental aspect of a Christian is our willingness to mm. constantly update uh, what we think to yeah. uh, what is true about Jesus. Yeah. You know, my wife talks about that a lot is her journey in repentance. You know, it's not just the first time that she said, I need to start to follow Jesus to repent of my sins and move towards him. But, you know, she said, you know, the first time that God opened my mind to his missionary heart and that there is a world out there that he is drawing to himself and that she has a part to play in it was a step of repentance for her. It was a paradigm shift or a mind shift where now I have to go a different direction because I actually know something new um, and have to move into a new, new space. Yes. Yes. I think, who was it? Um, It might've been Augustine in the fourth century or somebody, I think it was Augustine who said, uh, conversion takes a second, but salvation takes a lifetime. Mm, Yeah. We experience the, the, the moment of faith almost as a gift instantaneously, but man, the process of being fully saved and sanctified and, and transformed takes an entire lifetime. And the minute we stop doing it, did you know this, Joshua? This is one of the coolest things. I include this in one of the books that I recently wrote um, on the topic of uh, doubt and deconstruction called After Doubt. Mm-hmm. And I, um, the, in the ancient church, one of the last things a thinker would do, like uh, Augustine, the last book that they would write is they would write a book called The Retractations or Retract- Retractions. Essentially, your last book would be all the things you've been wrong about. Mm. And he, uh, re- Augustine's Retractations, it's one of the most interesting books in the world because he, he basically says, yeah, I've been just way off on all this <laughs> stuff. And he goes, but, but there's some stuff I haven't been off on, like miracles and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of wow. cool. Like, huh. So he says at the very end of his life, he says, I still believe in miracles. I've been long wrong about a lot of stuff, but not mm. miracles. So, but anyways, that's, isn't that cool? Like you would yeah. end- by saying this is all stuff I've been wrong about. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, I think that's fascinating. I love that that you're saying, "Hey, I'm I'm wrong about all these things," uh, but there's holding to a specific uh, tenet. How do we hold to the mystery of God uh, in the midst of things? And we start to, and how do we continue to grow towards Him? Yes, in the place where we know that we're probably wrong about a lot of things, but we're still saying. God is good. He's great. He's amazing. And I want to follow him and yes. he become more like him. Yep. You used a really critical word, mystery. Um, how do we embrace the mystery? Okay. So uh, let me give a pet peeve here. And then I think I can answer the question as best I can. 
Um, I do not like, and there are a lot of Christians that do this, especially Christians in the in the theology world that that I kind of swim in, who use mystery as basically a hall pass to not uh, land anywhere. <laughs> so so we'll we'll just say like, oh, it's a mystery, so we don't have to land there. The point of mystery, mystery is not the absence of knowledge. It's not that we can't know stuff. In fact, we are called to know the mystery of the gospel. Paul wrote a whole letter, Colossians, dealing with the mysterion, the mystery of the gospel. The mystery is not the absence of knowledge. Mystery is knowledge that takes an entire life to flesh out. Mm. Um, Meaning... (laughs) To embrace mystery does not give us permission to not to. It, it's not the it's not the absence of landing somewhere. Like I I want to stand here and say Joshua, Jesus is the only way to God. Yeah, there's no way of fans or putts about it. Like like if I'm if I'm faithfully holding forth the gospel, I hold I have to hold that tenet. But I also know it's a mystery. Yeah. So, so I faithfully hold it with all my heart. But I also know that I don't know everything about it. You know what? A lot of people here. Okay, I have a theory about something. Yeah, I think a lot of people right now. I've been working with a lot of talking about deconstruction and doubt for a couple of years now. And what most people mean when they say they are in a crisis of faith is not actually a crisis of faith. It's a crisis of understanding. Mm, yeah, meaning. They thought that having faith meant you got to fully understand everything. Mm. Yeah. When faith does not mean you fully understand. Mm. To I, You can have full faith and still be in a crisis of understanding mm. and not fully understand. I would argue that's the sign that you're loving the mysteries, is that you mm. believe them and you don't, don't fully get them. Wow. Do you think that's a, that's a condition of the times that we live in where... We've gone through this space where we have our iPhones, we have Google. Yes. We actually have, are certain we could find the information yes. and we can know the knowledge. Yeah. And then once the pandemic hit, we realized, oh, this world was uncertain uh, yes. to begin with, we, and it never was certain. <laughs> Joshua, we are so informed, shaped, and molded by enlightenment thinking that we, if we're ignorant to the waters that we swim in. This this idea of... um. The, the idea of knowing about, it, is it the fundamental difference between knowing about something and knowing something, right? The, yeah. The, to know about something. We assume to know about something means to know something. Okay, so case in point, you could probably rattle off a lot of facts right now about my wife, or somebody could. They could say, well, I know, okay, her name's Quinn Taylor Swoboda. She, you know, I could give all these facts. To know about my wife is not the same as knowing my wife. Yeah. Yeah. I I know my wife. You may know about her. I know her. The enlightenment taught us that knowing about is the same as knowing. That's I think that's the fundamental heresy of the enlightenment, mm. is that knowing about is the same as knowing. Mm. And there the this is the exact thing that Jesus spent Three years of public ministry nailing into the minds of Pharisees and Sadducees. You have the scriptures, and in them you think you have life, and yet you refuse to come to me. You know everything about me, but you don't know me. Mm. Even the demons, dude, yeah. their theology is impeccable. They know yeah. everything about Jesus, and yet they don't know Jesus. Mm. So the Enlightenment has just butchered the, the human soul and taught us 
uh, get the facts down, man. Be certain you're yeah. get the watch the YouTube click, get the get the stuff, and then and then no, that's um, mm. no no, that's not the same. So, what does that journey look like from moving from knowing about to knowing? Okay, I just read. Oh my gosh. Okay, I just read a book. My guy named Walter Sizek. He was a uh, Catholic priest who was uh, detained by the uh, by the Red Army, the Russians, in World War II when the, the army, the Russians, would take over a city. They didn't like the Catholics because the Catholics represented sort of the, the Russia. Russia's the orthodoxy, and Catholics represent capitalism. And uh, when he, uh, this guy uh, Walter Sizek, um was arrested, uh, he uh, uh, he was. I'm trying to find this 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 absolute uh, quote, the incredible quote. He's talking about being. Uh, in imprisoned in this experience of living, you know, basically in a concentration camp yeah. for for lack of better terms. And he makes a comment where he says, "Truth only serves those who are enslaved to it." Mm. Now, I, I have been thinking about mm. this is the, one of the most I, I think one of the most interesting concepts uh, I have uh, I have ever come across. And it's the, the basic idea is that's like truth serves those who are enslaved to it. The, tr- the truth serves those who spend their life serving it. And <clears throat> why, why, why would that have to do with your, your question here? There's a difference. <laughs> There's a difference between the wise men and Herod. Yeah. They both do the same thing. They both search for Jesus. Yeah, the Herod search for Jesus. Herod searches for Jesus, and the wise men search for Jesus. They both search for Jesus. It's not enough to search for search for Jesus, or to seek Jesus. Herod seeks Jesus to kill him. The wise men seek Jesus to worship him. Mm-hmm. There is a difference between seeking Jesus for the right reason and seeking Jesus for the wrong reason. We can seek Jesus because we want to use him. We want to use them for our own political ends. We want to use them for our own ideologies. We want to use them to prop up all of our stuff. Yeah. Or we seek Jesus because we want to bend the knee of our entire life at his feet and worship him. Jesus serves those who are enslaved to him. Mm. And there, we uh, listen, I'm, I'm going to be the first to say, I there have been times in my life I have used Jesus yeah, and used his name to baptize my agenda. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's the breaking of the third commandment to misuse God's name. It's to use God's name for my gig. I am either going to worship Jesus or I'm going to use him. Mm. And to me, that's the eternal call of discipleship: is am I loving Jesus for who he is or who I want him to be for my mm. purposes? <laughs> that takes a lifetime to iron out, friend. Truth, by the way, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Jesus himself is truth. Um, our culture is saying, you know, talking about relative truth or something like that. If you ask Mary or James or Joseph what they know about truth, they would say, you missed a word. It's not the truth is relative. It's the truth is a relative. Mm. Uh, it's my son. It's my brother. It's the person of Jesus. Jesus is our truth. And we spend our entire lives seeking truth, who is Jesus. 
Ah, that t- takes a lifetime, Joshua. Wow, wow. Uh, just sit with that. Uh, that's just uh, just incredible to start to walk through that place. That truth is well, truth is a person. Truth is Jesus. Truth is yes. Uh, the one that we get to to be revealed over and over and over again to who he truly is. Um, and that's uh, that's amazing. Because we often, I think, people, because truth is outside of the person of Jesus, and we've decided that truth is whatever we want it to be, um, and we're enslaved to whatever that is, where, you know, we actually have made our own little kingdom to ourself instead of being in the the reign and rule of, of Jesus as king um, and in his kingdom and under his lordship. We've decided that we were making ourselves yeah. king. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's uh, that's. Can I say something? Can I? Yeah, go for can it. I say something? I um, um, I uh, uh, Carl Truman has uh, r- written a book in the last couple of years uh, on the rise of the modern self. This idea of what has happened to our sense of identity as people in this digital environment. One of the things he says that I'm really struck by it it haunts me actually is he makes the claim uh, in his book that basically what you, you mentioned phones, basically what the digital revolution has done at the end of the day is it's so much more than a phone. It's so much more than a social media app. What it has essentially done is it has formed people into believing that they can arrange the world around themselves. Mm-hmm. His basic point is, is that it represents, I'm using my own language here, but it represents eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Wow. Um, that it represents displacing God as the one who has spoken truth to. Now I get to determine what is true and good, the knowledge of good and evil. I get to determine. Yeah. I know what's right and wrong. And, you know, I think it was Andy Crouch, although I, I used this years ago. I don't know who used it first, but I think it's really fascinating that when we turn our phones off, it flashes a, an apple with a bite taken out of it. <laughs> yeah. Like we're like we're back yeah. in the garden all over again and we've yeah. been chewing on this food that we um I'm terrified as an undergraduate theologian professor who teaches not only at the doctoral level, but the undergrad the graduate level, I'm terrified for this generation who have been handed a little device that basically says to them, you get to curate the world around what you want. Yeah. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Wow. I mean, so what practices can we do to detach from that and to become people that actually are under God's rule then? Yeah. Um, okay. So immediately a few tidbits come to mind. Number one would be, um, to practice what my friend John Mark Comer calls digital asceticism, and and what he what he means when he says that is have intentional seasons of your life where you disconnect entirely from your social media, and these intentional seasons are like fasting. It's digital fasting. It's like saying I'm going to I'm going to take a month and I'm I'm going to return to the obscurity of the voice of Christ and the Holy Spirit. I am not suggesting that we become Amish, uh, sort of, you know. Burn, burn it all to the ground. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that there are tremendous goods to the digital world that we live in, but if we don't have seasons of regular detachment, it will end up controlling us. 
either we control it or it will control us. Um, so I would say seasons of di digital asceticism. I'd say another one is intentionally go to a church um, that has people in it that you don't like um, and find a church that proclaims Jesus, holds the Bible up, preaches it, but there are people in the church that you really, really can't stand. And and here's what I want you to do is sit next to them and and greet them and love them because the the ultimate expression of a world where we surround ourselves with what we want is that we eventually end up surrounding ourselves with the people that we want. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, you know, Jesus's words to people who only greet those who greet them uh, is quite harsh. Yeah. And his his form of love requires that we go out of our way to embrace people that that drive us mad. I am, um, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest and I um do I do not like um the kind of weird nationalism that I'm seeing a lot of Christians embrace. And I've also got to say, I don't like the kind of syncretistic gospel that a lot of my progressive friends have bought into. Yeah. Um and I gotta say on both sides, it's a really funky time in history because <laughs> I'm mad I'm pretty much mad at both sides right now. And uh, I could do, you know, I could try to go find some church where everybody's at that agrees with me, but I just don't have it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't get the privilege of getting to pick a church where everybody's up with me. I have to go somewhere where I have to love people. Eugene Peterson's whole thing about the greatest enemy of the church uh, is the church that you wish you had. Um, and I, gosh, find a church where people drive you mad and love them mm. and spend 30 years doing that. And, and you'll be formed into the image of Christ. Wow. And that's such an important word now in the last couple of years. There's so many people that have moved into different camps and saying, I'm just going to be surrounded by the people that I yes. agree with or I like. And even though that we're all part of the body of Christ, that, that I don't like this this part, you know, you're, you're part of the right hand, I'm part of the left hand, and so we're not going to interact. Um, and so it's such a good word that we need to say that we're actually rooted in a, a place of, of unity uh, with one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one Father who is in all, uh, that works through all and is for all. And how can we stay there into a place where even through our, our diverse perspectives uh, and views of saying, hey, we actually are connected with something yes. greater than ourselves? Yes. I, Joshua, I have been, I have, I just put this, I just happened to put this, I'm giving a preview for my next book. I just put a whole section on this in my, uh, my book that's going to, uh, I have a book coming up with Zondervan uh, in a year called uh, The Gift of Thorns, The Way of Jesus Through Our Wayward Desires. How do we follow Jesus with all the desires that we have? Mm -hmm. And one of the immediate, I'm, I'm so, I, I just, I've been reflecting on this like so much. The first thing the man and the woman do when they sin is they cover over their body parts. Now, when you look at the man and the woman, they're both different. The man and the woman, the body is different. They have different bodies. First, A, I'm struck that God creates difference. And it is only through difference that the giving of life can happen. Mm. You need that life is the result of difference coming together. That's astounding. Yeah. I mean, that is just <laughs> mind-blowing that God has created a world where the only place where there is life mm. is where different comes together. Mm. It's astounding. Yeah. But the second thing is that the man and the woman, the first thing that they do in the world after the fall is their first move 
is to cover over their differences mm. <laughs> and make it look like we are the same. Wow. A world, God has created a world where a man and a woman come together and out come, can come a child. Likewise, our churches should reflect different people who come together in the spirit of Christ. And out of that is life. You cannot have a church create life where everyone is the same. Hmm. That's so good. You know, I've, is that, I mean, there's so, so much good. to that, but it isn't is, that true? God's it mystery. is true. God's mystery. Yeah. And it's a mystery. I'm just reflecting of my church here in Kansas city. Um, we actually have, uh, a network of of home churches we we gather once a month all together as all of our home churches come together so we're one body and i'm just reflecting on the 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 actual life that there is in in the body right now and where there is the most life is where we see people of differences coming together yes um there's yes. some ethnic differences that people are saying we're actually in this together uh, there's all sorts of of differences that we have but the life there uh is actually flourishing more than in places where people are homogenous um yes. and yes. they're thinking the same it's just interesting that just reflecting now in my own church i see that and i see that uh, just as a practical step to saying yes that is that is true that's amazing i love that yep yep you know as we're <laughs> We walk through this. I think one of the other th practices, something that we we probably should do, is to put things down. Is you know, you wrote about Sabbath a lot, and mm -hmm. uh, I think Sabbath is is really important to to come through it. You, I mean, you wrote about it before the pandemic, and once the pandemic hit, everybody said, "Oh yeah, we should rest." <laughs> yes. Or yes, this is what happens, right? Psalm twenty twenty three saying. You make me lie down in green pasture. Yeah, God made us lie down for a little while, and we finally realized, oh, we actually have to lie down. Yes. What is it about Sabbath all the way throughout Scripture that really, uh, I don't know, beholds the mystery of this, of, of rest mm. into a formation towards? Okay, great question. Well, there's two. Okay, so there's, there's, there's two dynamics to this. The first dynamic is that we— um, we are so, okay, we are in an unhealthy way. We are overly pragmatic. <laughs> what I mean by that is we only do things if we see the benefits to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here, I'm, I'll do it if it, like, it makes things better. So when somebody says to me, why should I keep a Sabbath? What they're really asking is they're asking, what are the benefits of doing this? <laughs> And if they are coming to practice the Sabbath only because of the benefits, then I will not respond to their question. Mm. Because ultimately, um, they're they're doing the obedience for the wrong reason. Yeah. And and I do not want to prop up obedience for the wrong reasons because it ultimately will just disappoint us all the more. By the way, there are absolute crazy benefits to Sabbath keeping. Yeah. For example, the healthiest religion in the world are Seventh-day Adventists hmm. who are, I would say, legalistically committed to the Sabbath. They also don't eat bacon. Um, but if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, on average, you live seven years longer than anybody else. Wow. You want to talk about pragma pragmatics. Are there reasons to keep a Sabbath? Yes. 
But if you do it for those reasons, mm. then you're doing it for the benefits, not for the obedience. Mm. So I would say, number one, we are overly pragmatic and we only do stuff if we have a good reason for it. Mm. It is striking when you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, when God tells a man and the woman, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He does not explain himself. Yeah. He doesn't tell them why. He doesn't say like, these are the reasons why you should do it. These are the rationale. He says, trust me, obey me, just trust me. I don't need to give you a reason. Trust me. It's the same thing when I say to a couple who's having sex before they get married and I look them in the face and say, stop it. And I go, well, why? We're living together. Stop it. Don't, don't, (laughs) trust, trust me. Don't get into the whole rationale. Trust me. That's what God is doing is he's saying like, just trust me. And we only do stuff if it pragmatically makes sense. So I would say on one hand, there's that. There's the second element is um, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, it strikes me that nobody says, well, what is, what's the benefit to that? Like, I've never heard somebody say like, well, what's like, why? We know that loving somebody in and of itself, regardless of what you get out of it, is the Jesus thing to do. Yeah. So my question is, why don't we apply the same thing to Sabbath? Yeah. Why do we have to have a reason to do it when God said to do it? Yeah. And then the answer is, we get to do it because God is the one who freaking made our genetic material and he knit us together in our mother's womb and he knows us best and he's telling us it's not he's not giving us a rule he's giving us a gift we are the only people in the world who will bicker with god over a gift (laughs) yeah like well god will only take the gift if we get a good reason for it have you ever taken a day eaten pancakes and bacon and coffee and gone on a walk and watched a movie and enjoyed a day of rest and and had to been explained why it was good for you. No, it's great because it's a gift. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. We are the only people in the world who will bicker over a gift. <laughs> <laughs> it's the greatest gift in the world, man. <laughs> Name one other religion. I mean, we literally worship the God who invented the weekend, man. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? What? How much more good news do we need? Yeah, and it's every week. <laughs> it's every week. It's a good, good, right. good. Absolutely right. Absolutely. <laughs> I yeah. Keeping the Sabbath has uh, actually really transformed the way that I've been living and working. Um, it also helps me keep boundaries uh, in in my life, um, and it it orders my my days and my week in a place where. I don't feel like I'm always playing catch up. Um, And, you know, if I don't take a Sabbath, I feel like I'm behind. If I do take a Sabbath, I feel like I'm caught up. It's an interesting dynamic for me where I feel like, oh, I could actually trust God. And it doesn't really depend on me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Things keep going and it doesn't revolve around me anymore. Okay. (laughs) Joshua, first of all, that you're doing it. Praise God. Uh, Secondly, uh, Nietzsche, or not Nietzsche, forgive me, Freud, Sigmund Freud, when he would, he was a really interesting therapist, counselor, because he, he would take these just like incredible notes on his patients. And he would always comment in his journals whenever he would meet with a, with a, 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 a Jew, when he would meet with a Jewish person. Yeah. 
that they would always, on the Sabbath, feel what he called, uh, Freud in his journals called it Sabbath neurosis Hmm. or Sabbath shame. And the idea was people would Sabbath, but they would feel like on the day they weren't being productive. They were, they were, they were failing or something like that. And we've got to remember, this is the, this is the greatest news. We got to remember that even shame is work. Yeah. And there is no shame on the Sabbath. Mm. Like to take a day, we get to that, that voice that says in our back, like you could be doing more for the kingdom right now. Yeah. You, you could be reaching more people for Jesus. You could be preaching better sermons. You get to say to the voice of Pharaoh, shut up. In the name of Jesus, I am free and I am no longer in Egypt. And you don't get to shame me into honoring and obeying God's voice. Mm. Isn't that liberating? It is. To so get to tell shame to go to its place. Yeah. You get, you get, you get to go somewhere else today because you're mm. not coming here. <laughs> I mean, that happened to me. Uh, I was actually, I was at a a gathering in, in Belfast, Ireland recently. Um, I was walking around and I opened my phone and I, I read an email and all of a sudden the spirit of shame just came over me and I felt, well, I felt shame. I felt like I was not good enough. I felt like I wasn't doing enough. I felt all sorts of things. And I, I, and about 15 seconds later, I said, this is not from God. This is not his voice. This is not who I am. And I said, all right, be quiet. And God, I need you to tell me who I am and remind me who I am again. And it was in that reminding that God said, okay, this is who you are. I have called you Joshua for a reason. Um, you are my son. I love you. Um that I actually decided, okay, I am okay now, and I can start to walk forward again and get rid of those those thoughts and those times of shame. When those shame thoughts come up, and you can tell the voice of Pharaoh to shut up, um, how how then can we re reassess and actually live into a different space, and not just a space of shame, but a space of knowing who we are in God and in Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we or we remember the order of um we remember the order of creation. And and we remember, yeah, we go back to we go back to our theology. I mean, you're talking to theologian here, bro. Like you go you go back to your theology and you go back to Genesis one and two, and you go back to when God told the man and the woman that they were to rest one day a week, yeah. which was day seven. And you remember what day that was. It was day seven. Yeah. Well, what does God make on day six? God makes humans on day six. So what were Adam and Eve doing on their first day of existence? They yeah. were resting. And meaning they didn't work six days to get a day off. Yeah. They started with rest. And then they moved to work. Mm. The order of Sabbath is never earned. It is never after six days. It is always you start with it. I mean, you look at a baby. My my son's 11. He was in my wife's womb for you know nine months. And I can tell you what he did for nine months in my wife's womb. I'll tell you exactly what he did. He didn't work. Yeah. And he's been out for 11 years. And I can tell you what he's been doing for most of his life. He has not been working. Yeah. He's been eating my pancakes and uh, playing Legos for basically 11 years of his life. And the way God has ordered the universe, the way God has structured our design is we do not work first. We rest first. 
and out of that rest we work. And it's the first, that is, I'm compelled. That's the first image of the gospel in the entire Bible mm. is the Sabbath, is that you begin. This is not a God who treats people like slaves. This is a God who treats people like children. Mm. And he gives them the rest first and out of that rest. Um, I read this guy, Henry Blotcher, who's a French theologian, who says, can you imagine what the man and the woman's first impression of God would have been like? You know, when you when somebody makes a first impression, yeah. you make you, you it's pretty hard to shake that first impression. It is. Yeah. You you just always remember the thing. Their first impression of God was yeah. take a break. <laughs> and wow. I mean, just like what that would have been like to to experience that God before they've done anything. So when you and I are trained in our mind to listen to Pharaoh more than we listen to God, um, we need to remember what Adam and Eve's, the man and the woman's first impression would have been. And we need that, that we have been more impressed by Pharaoh than we have been by God. Mm. And mm. we need to undo that, move from that impression and move to the impression of the God of the Bible. Mm. My goodness gracious friend, what great news. What great news. <laughs> really good news. Uh, yeah, you've shared a lot of good news here in this conversation. Uh, There's some bad news. You want to know the bad news? I, what's the bad news? Um, it's really, really sexy to talk about the Sabbath right now, and it's really it hard to do it. It is really hard. And everybody, I, I am getting a little frustrated that we, and with myself and sort of broader Christian culture, that Sabbath has become a sexy conversation, and we, I don't, I don't see a whole lot happening as a result of it. And yeah. I'd, I'd like to remind us, and myself included, AJ, listen, this is not just a cool thing to talk about. Yeah. It's an obedience issue. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So good. That's the bad hard news. <laughs> so good. Uh, yeah. A uh, couple questions here. One, if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? Um, get into a counseling office a lot faster. Mm. Um, and deal with your family of origin stuff mm. and don't, don't, don't wait until your mid thirties to start to look, uh, in, in your closet. Yeah. Um, I, for my first couple of years of faith, um, just, I was convinced I could pray, pray all the skeletons out of the closet and I couldn't. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm wishing that I had not over spiritualized, uh, childhood trauma. Mm. So, uh, I've heard too many Christians at this point say, why would I need a counselor? I have the great counselor. And I just think that's the crappiest theology ever. Mm. And I, yeah. I think, uh, we have the Holy spirit and that Holy spirit is leading us to get help. Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. Okay. So number one would be <laughs> stop over spiritualizing my need to have a person in my life that I can go through childhood stuff with. Um, and I would say secondly, um, uh, uh, stop basing my entire identity uh, in Christ on whether I've done my devotions this morning or not. Yeah. Um, and you know, evangelicals treat devotions the way the Catholics in the Protestant early Luther era treated indulgences. Uh, they've become the thing that we base our entire identity on. And it's killing a generation of people that are basing their entire identity on Jesus on having not read their Bible this morning. And I think God God wants to break through that and look us in the face and say, I want you to read your Bible, but you're my son. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't base your identity on that. Yeah. That's it. All right. That's great. Uh great advice. 
anything you've been reading uh, or, or watching mm. lately you could recommend? Oh, well, um, sadly, um, I actually have um, very little to say by way of watching stuff. I've, I've now, I'm finishing for the 10th time my viewing of The West Wing, which is my favorite show. Oh, I like The West um, Wing. As do I. Um, I would say the 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 stuff I've been reading uh, is all dovetailing my uh, my rec- my my book that I'm writing right now, which is all on desire. Um, so I would say a couple books that I've read in this research project that are just mind-numbingly good. You have to read. Yeah, would be Kurt uh, Thompson uh, Kurt Thompson's book, uh, the The Soul of Desire. Mm-hmm. So his book on desires is just un- unbelievable. Uh, he's a neuroscientist, Christian neuroscientist, who writes about desire from a neuro- neurological perspective. Um, another book uh, is not a book; it's an author. Read every, literally, read every single thing that Ronald Rollheiser wrote. R O L H E I S E R. His yeah. book, "The Holy Longing," is uh, the gateway. Uh, go through that and find your way into a whole new land. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say, thirdly. Uh, I've been getting really recently, I've just been reading the book of Jeremiah and I found the Bible's pretty awesome. So read the Bible. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> That's good. So that, how can people connect with you? Uh, you want to point them to anything? Uh, no. You've been working on, just, are you good? No. D- no. I mean, you can buy my books and, and stuff and write nice things. I do have a website. I have the website, AJ Swoboda writes, but my podcast, uh, Slow Theology, which I do with my colleague, uh, Dr. Nijay Gupta is a New Testament scholar, is basically a whole podcast on theology, and it's really fun. Uh, you can listen to Slow Theology. Um, I'm the worst human on Twitter. I don't do it, so don't follow <laughs> me there. <laughs> That's great. Well, AJ, I, I so appreciated this conversation, and I love uh, just pointing people towards Jesus um, and actually what does it look like to be formed uh, into his yeah. likeness um, and actually say hey, we could actually spend time with people we don't even like. Um, and that our differences make life. Um, yeah. And I love I love that. So thank you so much for this conversation. It was Joshua, God's grace and peace to you. It's been a joy to be with you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.